All right, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2 again this morning. We're going to finish up what we began last week, looking at this command by Peter to honor the king, to be submissive to the authorities on earth that are over us. First Peter chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. First Peter 2, 13 through 17. So if you've got that and want to follow along, verse 13 starts off, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We'll stop there for today. Let's have a word of prayer before we get into this. Father, again, we just need your help now as we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. Lord, we're here because we want to grow, we want to learn, we want to draw near to you. And so, Lord, just help our hearts to be open, remove distractions from our minds, that we may be able to hear and listen and have ears to hear what your spirit wants to tell us. And so, Lord, just do your work in this time. Lord, help me, fill me with your spirit, give me the words to say, and may you be glorified in all we do now as we look into your word together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, well, actually, several weeks ago we started this passage, but last week we were looking specifically at verses 16 and 17, after Peter has told us to submit ourselves to every our earthly authority, okay? And we looked at three aspects of this command last week. Uh, first, we saw to whom we are to submit and obey, and that is all earthly governments, whatever form they may take. There's no exceptions for that. God ordained government, and he says, follow or, or obey and submit to your authorities in government. So that's who we are to obey. Second, how we are to obey, and that is obeying every law of man. That includes paying our taxes. Unless those laws compel us to disobey God's direct command to us as the church. Okay, so it's not an absolute obedience, but it is a submission and obedience because that's God's authority in place. But when they cross the line and want to make us go directly against God's commands for us, then we must obey God rather than man. So that's how we are to obey. Third, we saw why we are to submit and obey our earthly governments. And the Bible tells us it's because they are the agents of God for good. They are literally his servants that he puts in place. And we have to keep this in perspective. It is for God's purpose, not what we think should happen. And there's where the rub comes in, because it's hard for us to see what God is doing. And we look at governments and we say, I can't understand how God would allow such wickedness to be in high places. And yet God has his reasons. And so for that, we must continue to submit to those authorities. Again, to the point of until they cause us to disobey the Lord directly. And so this morning, as we finish up verses 16 and 17, there's two more important aspects of submitting to earthly governments that I want to look at. And first is the attitude of submission that we see in verse 16. And then in verse 17 is the application across the broad spectrum of the population, not just 
uh, focused on government, but it is that right attitude of submission, remember, that Peter talks about for the rest of this book. And so having the right attitude of submission will help us to submit to our authorities, and then practicing that submission in all areas of our life will actually help us to submit to our authorities as well. So this idea of submission of government can be a controversial topic among Christians. And each of us probably has a little bit different perspective, a little bit different view. And it raises the question, as a couple people asked me last week, so how do we apply this then in different situations? For instance, were the founding fathers right or wrong in the American Revolution? Was that biblically correct or not? And I've had several people, both in the church here and other, where, other places, ask me that question. And they, so different people have arguments. They'll use 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're studying now. They'll use Romans chapter 13 that we looked at in depth last week. Um, they'll use examples from Scripture of rebellion against unjust governments and the overthrow of unjust governments that are recorded in Scripture and my answer is this, I'm going to give it to you at the end of my message, okay, after we've discussed these principles here, because I want us to have the full context, and then we'll apply it. So it's these principles in 16 and 17 that we're going to focus on, rather than trying to answer specific questions about whether other people applied it correctly or not. So first in verse 16, we have the proper attitude of submission, and when P Peter describes the proper attitude that we should have in regard to our government authorities, he begins with this, following his command in verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And then he explains who that is and how we're to do it and why we're to do it. And then in verse 16, he says this, as free or as free men. Now, what Peter is saying is not that we are free to do anything we want, okay? Freedom does not give us the ability or the liberty to do whatever we think is right, okay? Um, we're studying in Sunday school lessons about the children of Israel in the time of the judges specifically, and over and over in the book of Judges, we see the phrase, and they did that which was right in their own eyes, and that's what got them in trouble so often. It took them away from the Lord, it led them into idolatry, it brought judgment against them from God, and so freedom is not doing whatever we see as right in our own eyes. We have to understand that. That's not what Peter is saying here. And what we're talking about and what Peter is talking about is spiritual freedom. What freedom do we have in Christ? Now, the problem is many Christians wrongly equate their spiritual freedom with political freedom that we have on earth. They're not the same thing. And we need to understand that. Christian liberty is not based on a set of rights that we are given when we're saved. It's not a bunch of things that we're now free to do or allowed to do because we're in Christ. And so it doesn't matter. We're going to heaven. Yay. Okay. That's not it at all. Spiritual freedom actually is, in a sense, just the opposite of how we look at our political and civil freedoms in this country. Because it doesn't start with a list of things that we're allowed to do for our own good. In fact, spiritual freedom is the fact or the, the enablement that we have through the Holy Spirit to be able to give up our rights and all of those things that we're allowed to do in order to serve God and serve others. 
That's the whole idea of submission, right? I don't have to have my way. I'm going to submit to someone else. And so Peter says we approach this idea of submission as free people, understanding that we're free in Christ, okay? And understanding our Christian liberty means that we understand that it's not about claiming our rights like we do in our political and civil liberties. They're two totally different things. Paul makes very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Romans 14, he talks about Christian liberty. And the whole context of those chapters comes down to the fact that because we love other people, we're willing to give things up that are allowable or even good for ourselves. That's what Peter's talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient or helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify others. So he conditions his freedom based on how it affects other people, not what he gets out of it. And so that's what Peter's talking about when he says we submit as free men, understanding that we're free in Christ, but that doesn't allow us to just do whatever we want. Now, as Peter has emphasized from the beginning of his epistle, and over and over we're reminded of this, we're not citizens of this earth. Yet we have to submit to the authorities of this earth because God has put them in place. But again, here's another application of that idea that we're not citizens of this earth. So why are we so concerned about our rights and freedoms that we have on this earth? Sometimes those supersede our spiritual freedom in our Christian lives because we're so focused on, well, I have the right. So what? God says, yeah, you may have the right, but are you willing to give it up to serve other people in love? That's the question. So we shouldn't be overly concerned with our rights and freedoms that we have as pilgrims. We're not really even citizens. We're pilgrims. And this is where a lot of believers get hung up because we use our earthly rights and freedoms to define our spiritual liberty in Christ. Now, we have a constitution of the United States of America, okay? It outlines certain political and civil rights that we have because we were physically born here or naturalized in as citizens, but we are citizens of this country. And so that constitution and the rights delineated in that apply to us. They include freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to practice religion, freedom to petition the government, freedom to possess weapons for the purpose of self-defense, other basic rights, you know, the, the Bill of Rights. So those are delineated in our Constitution as things that are given to us or rights that we have as people. In fact, the writers of the Declaration of Independence basically said, all men are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Okay, and among those, they said, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As human beings, I would agree with them. God has made us all the same as human beings. We're going to allude to that in just a minute. And so we all have the same, in essence, rights through our position as human beings that God created. And God has given us some freedom. And so the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence didn't give us those rights. It just outlined those rights. But as believers, we don't equate 
our spiritual freedom with those rights and the political freedom that we have in this country. Okay, in fact, as believers, those political and civil rights that we have should take second place to our spiritual freedom. Because it's our spiritual freedom that really guides us in the area of submission. I mean, when you read through the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, there's not a whole lot about submission. Okay? It's about we are free people. We have the right to do these certain things. And those things are guaranteed to us by God. And yet Peter says we are to live or to submit as free men. Not claim and, and, and you know, establish the fact that this is what we can do. And so our political and civil rights take second place to our spiritual freedom in Christ. And that's why it's so important for us to understand what true spiritual freedom is, because it, it affects how we apply those human, physical, uh, political, and civil rights. We should apply them differently as believers because we are believers. Because truly, we're not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of heaven first. And that should be more important to us. And so Peter begins by defining the wrong attitude toward this freedom when he says, as free men in verse 16, and then immediately he gives us the negative side of that and says, don't use your freedom, though, as a liberty for, for, for a cloak of maliciousness or evil, as a covering for evil, he says. Don't use this so-called freedom that you have to cover up your evil intentions. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the Greek word for covering here refers to placing a mask or a veil over something. In other words, to hide its true identity. And I'm afraid that many believers and people live this way where they do certain things or even claim certain rights, and they'll say, well, you know, it's for the good of all, it's for this benefit. But inside, it's really about what I want, what my desires are. Because that's the way people live that are unsaved. And Peter's already warned us twice in chapter 1 and chapter 2 about living according to our lusts. That's the old way. That's not what we are supposed to do. And so Peter says, don't use your freedom in Christ as a cloak or covering for your evil intentions that are in your heart. Now, Peter is saying this because there were many who, in the name of spiritual freedom in his time were doing things that ended up being for their own benefit. You know, well, we're free in Christ, and so we don't have to obey the law. We don't need the law. We're free from the law. Uh, and Peter says, not so fast. Why do you want to claim that? Well, when you dig down to it, it's because you want to do what you want to do. But these people basically were claiming things and doing things that were for their own benefit, and they wanted to create a life for themselves that met with their own desires. Not God's will, necessarily. They claimed God's will, but it was about what they wanted out of it. And they were using this principle of spiritual freedom not only to rebel against government authorities, but also to rebel against spiritual authorities in the church. Well, if we're truly free, then we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. 
We can apply the Bible any way we want to apply the Bible. And unfortunately, there are many people who call themselves Christians who still live that way today. But that is not the attitude of submission. Okay? And Peter is focused on this attitude of submission rather than on the culture and the attitude that has pervaded our culture of entitlement and self-importance. See, submission starts with, number one, I deserve nothing. Number two, I am nothing. That's what the Bible says we are without God. With God, we are something because Christ is in us and he is something. That's the only thing that makes us something. Otherwise, we are nothing. We deserve nothing but death and punishment. And so this entitlement and self-importance that many Christians even take the approach in their Christianity saying, no, I'm a child of God, therefore I deserve. No, we deserve nothing. And that's why we are supposed to submit. But the results of these actions of people, both in Peter's day and in our day, are catastrophic to the public testimony of the church as followers of Christ. Because their lives are not demonstrating an overall attitude of submission. It's rather an attitude of, this is about me. This is what I want. I deserve this. I have the right to. And they demanded things for themselves. And you want to start problems in a church? Go that route. It's the fastest way to destroy a church that I know of. And so this was manifested in their attitudes and their actions, both against government authorities and against the leaders in the church. Now, Peter later in 2 Peter, we'll get to that eventually, but Peter, John in his epistles, uh, Paul in many of his epistles, referred to these kinds of individuals that had to claim their rights, that had to, to be you know, entitled to something. They called them false prophets, wolves among sheep, and brute beasts. In other words, they have no idea what it means to be free in Christ. In fact, Peter devotes an entire chapter in 2 Peter chapter 2 to warning us about these kind of individuals. Let me just read two, three verses out of 2 Peter 2, verses 10 through 12. This is Peter. He says, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, Okay, it's what I want, living according to what I want. And then he says this, and they despise government. See the connection? Presumptuous they are, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. That means both spiritual authorities, um, I'm sorry, both physical authorities in the world, in our government, as well as the authorities in the spirit world. And that includes God. Well, God doesn't know what he's doing. Or making fun of Satan. Do we really have the power to do that? Has God commanded us? No, he said, beware of Satan. Because he's walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But Peter defines these people specifically. They despise governments, not, are afraid, not afraid to speak evil of dignities or dignitaries. And then he says, whereas angels, which are in greater in power and might than them, bring no railing accusation against them before the Lord. The angels do not accuse and mock and make fun of earthly governors who are evil because they realize that those are God's servants that he has put in place for his own purpose. And he says, people who ignore that warning 
about submission to authorities. You are walking after the flesh and your lusts. And eventually he calls them brute beasts. Verse 12, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and they shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Okay, so we have to have the right attitude about our rights, about our position, you know, demanding things, especially in regard to our government. In contrast to that wrong ideology that Peter puts forth here and the attitude of being free men, Peter explains at the end of verse 16 what this freedom actually means. Now look at what he says, not for not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as what? The servants of God. The word there is doulos. It means bond slave. Now, a bond slave was the lowest form of servitude that you could be engaged in in biblical times. The lowest. You had no rights. You had no choices about your life. You could not change anything. You were there to obey commands, period. That was it. And that's what Peter says. We are free, but we look at our freedom as servants, bond slaves of who? Of God, the Lord. So our spiritual freedom is not about being free to do what we want. Our spiritual freedom is the freedom of from the bonds of sin that cause us to want to live by what we want. That's freedom. And spiritual freedom grants us freedom from the power and punishment from sin, from the control of Satan in our lives, from having to be controlled by our own lusts. This is what we've been made free from. But what have we been made free to? Peter says, to be bond servants of the Lord to be slaves to Christ. So literally, the spiritual liberty or the freedom that we have in Christ that Peter's talking about is not the freedom to do whatever we want. It is the freedom to do what is right. And who decides what is right? God. And so in our freedom, we only do those things that our master tells us to do. And so the question is, who is your master? Are we truly free in Christ to serve God, or am I still my master, am I lust still my master, and I'm going to determine what my life is going to be like? What does God say about what is right for a Christian? Let me give you some examples. Number one, deny yourself. Not stand up for yourself or defend yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Deny yourself so you can start serving in love. Number two, crucify your own lusts and desires. It's not about what you want. It's about what God wants. It's not even about what you need. It's about what others need. Number three, esteem everyone else above yourself. That means other people are more important. That means Literally, to you, their lives are more important than your life. Four, serve others in sacrificial love. Giving up what I need in order that others may have what they need. 
and among those in this list, obey the authorities that God has set over you. Those are the things that God says is right. Those are the things that as bond servants of Christ that we submit to do. Not make our own choices, not claim our rights and our freedom to serve God and to put ourselves, not even last, just off the page because it's not about us. And so all of these things that I just said that God says are the right things to do, deny yourself, crucify your lusts, esteem everyone above yourself, serve others in love, obey your authorities, all of those things are the practical outworking of this attitude of submission that Peter's talking about here. And at the end of verse 16, he defines it as in that, with that word, bond slave. That's how we know we're free, because we are slaves to God, not slaves to sin. God is our master now, so we must obey him in everything. And that is what we should want to do as followers of Christ, isn't it? To obey God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience to God resulting in righteousness. Paul basically says, take your pick. Who are you going to be a slave to? You don't get to be free, really, in your mind. You are a slave, either to sin or to God. End of story. Take your pick. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to the heart, obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, talking about the gospel, and having been freed from sin, you become slaves unto righteousness. That's the word free that Peter uses in verse 16. We submit ourselves because we are free. We give up our rights because we are free. We do not demand things for ourselves and want things our own way because we are free. And so Peter's saying here, that we must stop claiming our rights as citizens of this earth and, and, and stop living to serve ourselves and stop protecting our own lives and our own welfare. That's not what believers are called to. That's bondage. What we are free to do is give all that up so that we can serve God. And that principle in this context then applies even to when our constitutionally guaranteed civil rights are violated by our government. Why do Christians have to demand my rights? The gospel is our highest priority. It, only it, it alone can change the hearts of men. Okay, that's our goal, right? And if our demanding our rights so that we have what we deserve as human beings, causes our testimony to be tarnished so that the platform from which we were able to, to give the gospel is now destroyed, what have we gained? Nothing. We forfeited and abandoned the call that God has given to us as believers, the, the whole purpose for which God saved us. That's why we're here. 
to live, to spread the gospel through our lives and testimony. So Peter is saying to stand up for your own guaranteed political and civil rights falls under this category of, what does he say? A cloak, uh, using your freedom as a cloak for evil. I want what I want. I want what I deserve. I deserve this. I'm going to stand up for it. That's a cloak for evil. If, it's, if, if all of the things that you're demanding are for your benefit, how is that submission? If it's to benefit you and your own desired lifestyle and the way you want your life to be, how is that submission? And that's what Peter's talking about. To do anything in order to get what you want is wrong. That's being controlled by our lust. In verse 11, he says that we are living according to our fleshly lust, which wage war against our soul. In other words, you're destroying any spiritual benefit that God could give you because you're so focused on the physical. And that would fall squarely in the definition of what Peter says. We're using our freedom as a covering for evil. So here's the question. Should we just stand aside then and let our government propagate all this evil against us? Yes. Should we stand aside and let government propagate evil against our neighbors? No. That's the difference. It's not about us. It's about others. We stand up not for our rights, but for what is right. We preach the truth of God and righteousness. We protect others from wickedness and evil, both in practice and in consequence. And we don't think about our own well-being with no regard for how it affects us or how it comes down on us. It's not about what benefit we get out of it or even our own safety. You think about the military. They take an oath to protect the Constitution of the people of the United States. And they do so many times at the cost of their own lives. And many times in Scripture, Paul especially alludes to believers as soldiers of Christ. We are not in this fight to gain for ourselves. We are in this fight to serve God and to benefit other people. And primarily by bringing them into the kingdom the best we can. Why do we do it this way? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Where in Scripture, read through the Gospels, where does Jesus demand his rights? He was innocent, standing before a tribunal, accused of things that he did not do. Did he demand his rights? He submitted to the government authorities because that was God's will for him. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says in verses 3 to 5, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interest of others, and have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. So everything that I've said is not some weird idea that I you know, scrambled up and put in my notes here. It's just looking at the life of Christ. How did Jesus live this principle of being free? He submitted. 
So when Peter says we're to submit to our authorities, that God has ordained over us, obviously we understand that to mean the laws, the rulers that God has put in place. But the attitude of submission that Peter defines in this context goes way beyond that because it's the freedom to give up our own rights and liberties for the good of others and the testimony of our God. And so why do we submit to the government authorities? Not for our own good. Not so we have peaceful lives. Not so we won't be arrested. It's to show forth in our lives the glorious mercies and works of the God that we serve. It's for the well-being of others. And as Jesus said, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, or as we would love ourselves. So in verse 17, Peter gives us a general application how we carry out that submission, that general attitude of submission. Number one, he says in verse 17, honor all men or all people. In other words, treat everyone with honor and respect. The word also carries the idea of being honest, which would be the opposite of using my freedom as a covering for evil or evil intent. Be honest with all men. Treat others with honor and respect. In Genesis 1.26, when God created Adam and Eve, it says that we were created in the image of God. So who is exempt from that? Are there any people that God creates? And by the way, every person alive, God created. It's not just, oops, there's another one I didn't know about. Okay, God put here on purpose every person that is alive and that ever has been alive. They were created by God in the image of Christ, or in the image of God, and yet it's the sin nature that mars that image. That's why we don't see God in people, because we see the sin. But God does not value any one person any more importantly than any other person. In his eyes, we are all the same. We are created beings. We are made to serve the Lord. We are all fallen in sin. We all need a Savior. No one is exempt from that. And so as God looks at us, we are his people. Not, oh, that one's special. Oh, that one's better. Oh, that one's really good. We are all the same in God's eyes, and we all need the same thing. And so being in the image of God, we're all on an equal footing as far as God is concerned. And since none of us is any more important or special than any other, and it doesn't matter what our race, our nationality, our claimed religion, our prosperity, our level, or even our level of authority on this earth, it doesn't matter where we stand in those things, we are equal before God. And so as believers, we are to look at all people the same way God looks at them. We are all sinners. We're all in this boat together. We need the Lord. And what was God's response to that in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. And what are we called to do as believers? Love others. And so Peter says, honor all men. Treat them with respect, with honor. In Romans chapter 12, we have a handbook for Christian living. That's what I call it. I think it's a great list of practical application. But in verses 14 through 21, Paul gives us a list of how to treat other people in general. Bless them which persecute you. We read this this morning. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Don't mind high things. Condescend to men of low estate. In other words, don't think you're higher than other people. 
Be not wise in your own conceits. Don't give evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably. And he goes on. These, this is how we treat everyone. doesn't matter who they are. And so Peter first says, if you're going to submit, then we should honor all men. Second, he gets, says this, specifically, love the brethren. Love the brotherhood. What is he talking about? The church. Okay, the whole first chapter, he's focused on we are all one church, a peculiar people, a chosen nation. We're in this because God has put us here. And God has put us here for a reason. And so there's a bond in Christ that we cannot break. There is a bond in Christ that only God can create. Somebody can't just decide, oh, I think I'll be part of the church today. That's done by the Lord. And so we are a special group of people, just as Christ has a special love for his bride, so we as the bride should have a special love for each other. Okay, and that's what Peter's alluding to. So yes, love all people, but really, really love other believers. Go way beyond what you think is even acceptable in loving the world. In 1 Peter 1, he said this, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And we have that command all through Scripture. John says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, there's honor all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith, there's love the brethren. And again, in Romans 12, Paul lists out a bunch of things. Don't be hypocritical. Cleave to the things that are good. Be kindly affectioned to one another. Prefer one another. Don't be slothful in business. How does that apply to loving one another? Because what you do affects everybody, not just yourself. If we have 10 people who are diligent and 90 people who are lazy, how does that affect a church? He says, rejoice in hope patient in tribulation, always being in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints. Okay, a special love, Peter says. And that's how we demonstrate submission to each other. Third, he says, fear God. This is Peter's second reference to fearing God. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, If ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. If you call him Father, knowing that you're just a pilgrim on this earth, you live in fear of the one who saved you. Not a fear of his punishment, but think about who he is. He has the power to send you to hell as a sinner. He has the power to save you from hell in repentance. He has the power to hold you and to secure you in that salvation until this earthly life is over and then to bring you to heaven. That is power that we should not just admire, but that we should bow before. And so that is built into this word, fear God, Think about who he is. Yes, we should fear him. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him 
that is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the power of God that we must fear and respect. And so we dare not, as believers, do anything that would displease him. Not because we're fear of him stomping on us, but we're fearful of disappointing the one who has loved us. And in that same light, we believe God is not just all-powerful, but all-wise, right? God gave us the perfect plan to be reconciled with him. We wouldn't have thought of that. If it was up to us, oh, let's see how much good works we can do. God says, sorry, that won't work. I have a better plan. God is all-wise. He created us. He created all the systems within our body that make us alive. He created the world in a per- as a perfect place for us to survive and live. On any other planet, we'd be dead in a second. And so he is all-wise. He's omniscient. And be- therefore, we need to submit ourselves to his wisdom. And that's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is so important. What, you know, we all say it, but do we really understand it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. There's submission. Okay, Lord, I don't get it. I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm just going to accept what you say because you're way smarter than I am. That's trust. And therefore, we won't go to God and go, God, I don't understand why you're doing all this. I don't deserve this. Oh, yes, you do. Number one, you deserve a whole lot more than what you're getting. But God's doing it for a reason. And if we submit to him, then we trust him in those things that he allows. Why do we trust him in those things we don't understand? Because, as Romans 8 tells us, we know that all things work together for our good. We know it because we submit to his all-surpassing knowledge that's way above ours. And then when we fear God correctly and fear his authority, then Peter says, finally, look at the last phrase of verse 17. You will what? Honor the king. We've come full circle. And Peter, or John, or Paul said this in Romans 13, render therefore to all who are due, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. Honor the king. Now, I want you to notice one thing. Peter says, honor the king. We're going to close with this. Peter says, honor the king. He does not say, fear the king. Now, you might say, well, Paul said in Romans 13 to give fear unto whom fear is due. Yes, but Paul did not say give fear to government. He said, give fear to whom fear is due. And who should we fear? The Lord. Because he is the ultimate authority. He did not specify that fear was to be given to earthly governments and authorities. Reverence, yes. Respect, yes. Obedience, yes. Tribute and taxes, yes. But not fear. Now remember, government was ordained by God to punish evildoers and reward those who are good. Peter says that in verse 14. We read that this morning. So as believers, if we're submitted to those laws, if we're submitted to the ultimate authority of God, then what do we have to fear? Nothing. Paul told Timothy this, that the law was not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners. Christians shouldn't need laws to do the right thing. We should do the right thing out of our love for God and love for other people. We don't need laws but we are to submit to them. 
So we have no fear of our government because we're not living to break laws. Now, unsafe people, they live for themselves, so they'll do whatever is right in their own eyes. But what about when government becomes absolutely wicked, praising evil and persecuting good, as we're beginning to see today more and more? What do you do then? Okay, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 28. Who do we fear? Do not fear those who can kill only our bodies. He said it specifically, don't fear them. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus says this, When men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, do what? Go hide in a corner, whimper and cower in fear? No, he says, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. The earthly life is not as important as the spiritual life, and God is in control, and he's going to bring you to a good end in the, in, in the long run. So stop worrying about what government or other people can do to your physical life because it doesn't matter a whole lot. We should not live in fear of physical death, whether it be at the hands of a disease or whether it be at the hands of a government that's evil. We do not fear earthly authorities. We respect and submit to them, but we do not fear them. We should always fear God, but never fear our government. Our loyalty and submission is to our Heavenly Father. We owe him our lives, literally. And so because he says submit to our government, that's why we submit to our government, not because we fear what they will do to us. We fear what God can do in our lives. We fear disappointing him. Now, at the beginning of the message, I told you I'd answer the question about the founding fathers, whether they were biblically correct in rebelling against England in the revolution. Here's my answer. I can't make that judgment because I'm not in their shoes, for one thing. We don't have all the information they were dealing with. And I've studied the writings of many godly religious men and pastors and theologians who were part of that revolution at that time, And I may not agree specifically with their specific interpretation and application of Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, okay? But I don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. Secondly, God has not called me nor God has called you to be their judge. We can't make that determination, go around pointing fingers and say, no, they did wrong. No, what matters, what are you doing? in the circumstances that you're in. So we make a big deal sometimes about what other people have done, and we pay no attention to what we should be doing. And so here's what I know. God ordains all government for his purpose. And you say, well, what if they disobeyed the Lord to make it happen? Did Nebuchadnezzar disobey the Lord in his government? What about Assyria? What about Persia? What about Rome? Did they obey God? And that's why God gave them the government authority? God ordains all government for his purpose. And God used that revolution to raise up a country for his purpose. That's my answer. Whether men on earth obey or disobey God's ultimate purpose and plan is always accomplished even through those actions. 
God even uses sin to accomplish his purpose. Does that mean God ordains it or causes it to happen? No. But it's a statement about God's sovereignty that he is over all, and he knows what people are going to do. And so his whole plan is built around the fact that we are sinful people and we will make wrong decisions, even in government. And yet we are still to submit to those authorities. But we never fear them. Psalm 94 ends like this. They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense. And my, and my God is the rock of my refuge. He shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. There's my answer to all the wickedness around us. God will cut them off. The Lord is our portion, not the government. The Lord is our defense, not the government. In God we trust not the government. And so we boldly proclaim, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. We do not fear man. And we do not fear earthly governments. But because we fear God, we must submit to them. Because it's his will for us. Someday God's going to destroy all the worldly governments of unrighteousness, and we'll be ushered into a perfect, righteous kingdom with our holy king. But until that day, God's command for us is to, our, to respect, to honor, to submit to our earthly authorities. It teaches us the lesson of submitting, which is a hallmark of true Christianity. And so I'm going to end with this question that I've asked this last couple of weeks. People are watching you. They're watching how you respond to authority. What do your actions demonstrate about your submission to the God that you serve? And that's what Peter's asking us here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. You have given us many answers to many questions about how to live our lives, and yet there's still a lot of questions that are not answered, and so we're just going to have to trust you for those. But Lord, you've given us the answer for every problem that we encounter day by day, and so help us to trust you in that and to walk in submission to your authority, to walk in submission to the authorities that you've placed over us and into the submission of those around us, looking to help them and to meet their needs, to bring good to their lives through your truth to forget about ourselves as you did when you walked this earth. We can't do it without your help, and so we just implore you. Help us see your spirit working in us, guiding us, directing us each day to walk according to your truth. And in it all, we don't get the praise. We give you the glory and praise because it's you who is at the core of it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing hymn is 470.